If you would, turn in your Bibles tonight to Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27. Over the last several Sunday nights, we've been looking together at the tabernacle and the furnishings that go inside the tabernacle. And we notice that the way that Moses has presented the material is he began with the most holy object. The object that is most closely associated with the presence of God. And that is the altar, or the, the ark, I should say, of the covenant. The ark of the covenant, and on, on top of which is the mercy seat, or the atonement cover, with the two cherubim that overshadow that, that mercy seat. And that is the place where the presence of God, His glory, was going to reside in the midst of the Israelite people. And that is also the place where once a year, the high priest would enter to sprinkle the blood of atonement, to make uh, atonement for the sins of the people. And then beginning with that central place of God's presence and that sacred ark of the covenant, then he begins to move outward from there. And he addresses, or he describes then the lampstand and the table of presence, the table of the bread of presence that are just outside of the veil, outside of the most holy place. So he addresses those holy furnishings first, then he addresses the tent that goes over the top of those furnishings, which shows us that really the most important thing about this is not the structure itself, it's what goes on inside the structure. It's, it's where the presence of God is, it's where the atonement is, where the atonement blood is applied. The, the, the tent, the tabernacle, is the structure to, that supports those functions. And now we're beginning to move even outward from that because our chapter tonight moves outside of the tabernacle into the the courtyard area of the tabernacle. And some of the one in particular object of furnishing that is just outside of the tabernacle, which is the brazen altar. And that is the place where burnt offerings were made just outside of the tabernacle entrance. And then he also describes the courtyard, its dimensions that surround the tabernacle itself. And so let's look at this passage together tonight and and see what this passage teaches us about who God is and how we relate to this God. Exodus chapter 27, verse 1. These are the Lord's commands to Moses. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners, so that the horns and the altar are of one piece, and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all of its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes, and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings so they will be on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. Make a courtyard for the tabernacle. 
The south side shall be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains of finely twisted linen with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side shall also be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The west end of the courtyard shall be 50 cubits, 50 cubits wide and have curtains with 10 posts and 10 bases. On the east end, toward the sunrise, the courtyard shall also be 50 cubits wide. Curtains 15 cubits long are to be on, the, on one side of the entrance with three posts and three bases. And curtains 15 cubits long are to be on the other side with three posts and three bases. For the entrance to the courtyard, provide a curtain 20 cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer, with four posts and four bases. All the posts around the courtyard are to have silver bands and hooks and bronze bases. The courtyard shall be a hundred cubits long and fifty cubits wide, with curtains of finely twisted linen five cubits high and with bronze bases. All the other articles used in the service of the tabernacle, whatever their function, including all the tent pegs for it and those for the courtyard, are to be of bronze. Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning. In the tent of meeting outside the curtain that shields the ark of the covenant law, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Let's pray together. Our great Father, we thank you that in the name of Jesus Christ, we can come before your throne. We thank you for his atoning work for us, that through him we can be declared righteous and be made right before you. Thank you, Lord, for this privilege of worshiping you today, of gathering around your word, of listening to its truths. So, Lord, may your word teach us tonight. May we learn more of your greatness, your majesty, and your holiness. And Lord, may we marvel at the fact that you, a holy, righteous God, have chosen to relate to us and to love us and to be our Father and we your children. Lord, bless this time, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If there's one thing that I think is obvious from the description that we've seen really beginning in Exodus 19, when they reach Mount Sinai, all the way through the giving of the law, to the theophany of God, His presence coming to the top of the mountain, the earthquake, the shaking, the lightning, the thunder. And then even now in in the description of the tabernacle and its furnishings in the courtyard, I think one thing that is incredibly clear is that our God is holy. Our God is holy. And the fundamental, the core truth of holiness is that God is unique. He is set apart. He is consecrated. He is unlike anyone else in all of the universe. And so he is to be distinct, and he is to be treated as distinct, as special, as holy, as consecrated. And all of this description of the tabernacle is intended to teach us that, that our God is holy. And we are to relate to him in the way that he prescribes. Because he is the holy God. And 
in his mercy, he has allowed us to relate to him as, as God and he loving us as God. But as we relate to him, we must do so in a way that he prescribes, in a way that he commands. As we look at this passage tonight, and as we focus on really three aspects, the three parts of this passage, the first part is the description of the bronze altar. The second part is the description of the courtyard and its dimensions. And then the very end of the passage has a reference to the, the, the gathering of oil, olive oil, for the purpose of keeping the lamps burning inside the holy place in the tabernacle. So as we look at these three sections, I think there are three clear ideas or points that flow from these three sections of this passage. As we focus on the bronze altar, I think the bronze altar in particular speaks of the necessity of atonement to relate to a holy God. The bronze altar speaks of the necessity of atonement to relate to a holy God. It's amazing that if if you were to enter into the courtyard and at the very entrance of the tabernacle, just outside of the tabernacle, central, right smack in the middle of this section of the courtyard would be this bronze altar. And, And you couldn't miss it. It, it was it was fairly large in size. In fact, it was about as high as a person in height. And so this is a fairly large structure. You could not miss it. And so in this, in this place is where the burnt offerings would be offered. This was a, a daily reminder that to relate to this holy God requires atoning sacrifice. And that to come before him, you must come before him with blood and with atonement. And so the brazen altar teaches us the necessity of, if God is going to relate to a sinful people and he is holy, the only way for that to happen is through sacrificial atonement, through, through the blood of expiation, through his wrath being appeased by the offering of sacrifices. As we look at the dimensions of this altar, we see that it's described as being three cubits high. That is about four and a half feet tall. So in order to to look over it, to see what's going on inside of this, the, the, the animal that's being sacrificed is almost at eye level. So it's pretty tall uh, object. So about four and a half feet tall, five cubits long, five cubits wide. So seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet in length. And so it was, it was pretty big in size. And there's no way that you could miss it when coming into this courtyard. It also describes in the passage that each of the four corners of the altar was to have horns on it. So four horns, kind of extensions, coming up from the altar. And some have suggested that one of the purposes of these horns is to tie down the sacrifices while they're being made. But there's no clear indication in Scripture that that was the primary purpose of these horns. In fact, as we read about the method of sacrifice, generally speaking, the animals were slaughtered not on the altar itself, but just beside the altar. 
And then they were oftentimes cut up and then put on the altar as pieces of meat to be offered as burnt offerings, as sacrifices to the Lord. So it's not likely that these horns were used to tie down a live animal. In fact, as we read further in Scripture, we see that there's other significance for these four horns on the altar. Three significances that I was able to find in Scripture. One is, whenever an offering was made, blood would be smeared on the horns of these altar, of the altar. And so it, it signified atonement. That, that blood was placed there, smeared there, almost like blood was smeared on the doorposts of the homes in Egypt during the Passover. It's like the blood was applied. So the blood is applied to these horns when the sacrifice is made. It signifies atonement. The other thing that is significant about these horns you see in Scripture is that these horns seem to be a place of refuge. In different places in Scripture, you'll find reference to taking hold of the horns of the altar. And the idea of that is that if somebody was seeking for refuge, somebody was seeking for protection for their own life, they would run to the and take hold of the horn of the altar as a way of saying, I'm pleading before God that, that you would spare me, spare my life. We find a couple of instances of that with Adonijah and Joab in the books of Samuel and Kings. But here's the thing, is even if you are to take hold of the horns of the altar and seek refuge and seek protection for your life, those horns of the altar did not protect a person who was rightfully guilty of a crime that deserved punishment. And so the scriptures say, if a murderer, even if he were to take hold of the horns of the altar, he is to be taken and put to death because he is a murderer and deserves to die. But you see that in the scripture where these horns seem to be a place of refuge where people would go to seek protection. The other significance of these horns is that apparently the priests, when offering intercessory prayers, would take hold of these horns of the altar. And so it was a place of intercession, it was a place of atonement, it was a place of refuge. And so that's the theological significance of these horns on the altar. We see that the altar itself is overlaid with bronze, which is significant, isn't it? Because the articles inside of the tabernacle are overlaid with gold. But now we're moving outside of the tabernacle, and so the utensils and the objects are overlaid with bronze which signifies a decreasing level of holiness the further away you get from the centralized presence of God in the most holy place. And so you can also see that with the courtyard. We'll see that in a few moments. That around the tabernacle itself, its, goal, its rings are to be of gold and its bases of the posts are to be of silver. Whereas when you move outward to the courtyard, the rings are of silver and the bases are of bronze. So you move one step lower in the quality of metal, signifying that you're moving outward from the holy presence of the Lord. And so it's a bronze altar. All the utensils that were used, whether it be for the shoveling out of ash or the, the carrying of meat or the forks for used of turning of meat, all of the utensils that were used on this altar were also made of bronze. And then it describes this network or a grating. It, 
the way I understand it is almost kind of like a, a grate where it's crisscrossed and thing, and you have air that can come in or things can fall through the grate. And maybe a couple of purposes for that. One suggested that maybe this is for the purpose of ventilation uh, for this burnt, this place of fire and offering. The other suggestion is that it would allow uh, the ash to fall through to the ground. But there was this grating on which the sacrifice would be placed. And it specifically says that this was to be hollow. Now, the idea of hollow is that it was of board, but then overlaid with bronze to make it a little bit lighter. Why? Because this is supposed to be portable, right? So even though it's a large, fairly large object, it's a part of a portable structure. The tabernacle, it moves with them from place to place, and all the objects move with them from place to place. And Moses is told to make this according to the pattern on the mountain, which, as we read in Hebrews a few moments ago, we are reminded that there is a genuine tabernacle, if you will, in heaven. And, and the one that Moses is making on earth is but a copy, a shadow of the true heavenly sanctuary. But this is a very holy object, and it is an object that is specifically associated with the sacrifice of animals and atonement that needed to be made so that people could approach God. One commentator says it this way, The rituals associated with the tabernacle are designed to address human sin and defilement. The layout of the furnishings is a constant reminder that God may be approached only by those who have been sanctified by the offering of appropriate sacrifices. While God's holy nature requires that the Israelites remain at a safe distance, access to the divine presence is possible when appropriate sacrifices are made. The location of the bronze altar and its counterpart, which is the the golden altar of incense, which is inside the tabernacle, at their respective entrances on the way into God's presence, underscore the importance of atonement for the reconciliation of alienated humanity with God, their creator. And so you have the bronze altar at the entrance to the tabernacle itself, Then you have a golden altar of incense at the entrance to the most holy place. So it's a reminder, the closer you get to the presence of God, it is a reminder that only through atonement can we achieve this relationship with God and enter into his presence. So God is holy. We are sinful. In order for us to be in covenant relationship with a holy God, an atonement for sin must be made. Now we can easily move forward in biblical history and biblical theology. And we can see from the perspective of the New Testament that this truth finds its fulfillment ultimately in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? That that there is no relating to God without sacrifice. There is no relationship with God, no worship of God at all possible without sacrifice. You can go all the way back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden, which interestingly enough, which way does the tabernacle face? It faces east. And the entrance to the Garden of Eden also faced east. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you can see where God slaughters animals and makes coats of skin for Adam and Eve 
so that their guilt and shame may be covered. From that very beginning in Genesis 3, running all the way through Christ, there is no relationship with God, no worship of God without sacrifice. But Jesus fulfills this, doesn't he? Jesus fulfills this. The writer of Hebrews teaches us that when Jesus came and he offered himself to the death of the cross, that he was a a sacrifice of atonement once for all. Finished. And so when Jesus cried out, it is finished, it's because he had fulfilled everything the Father had told him to do and also fulfilled all of this that the Old Testament had been pointing to. It's finished. But the only way that we can relate to a holy God is through sacrifice. But now, as the writer of Hebrews teaches us, this old covenant has passed away. Now there's a new covenant. No longer can we relate to God through the blood of bulls and goats. The only way to relate to God now is through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. But this altar teaches us, it speaks of the necessity of atonement to relate to a holy God. As we move into the second part of this chapter and we see the the description of the courtyard, the courtyard speaks of the barrier that separates sinful people from a holy God. What's interesting about the, the design of the tabernacle is that you have a very centralized location with the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. That place is surrounded by a curtain, right? It's surrounded by curtains. It is its own separate room. And that room is marked off as holy, isn't it? That is the most holy place. We call that the holy of holies because you cannot get any holier than that place. That is where the presence of God is. And then you begin to move outward, don't you? So only the high priest, and only once a year, only at the time that God describes and he defines can one person once a year enter into that most holy place. And then you move outward from there and you, and you move into the, the outer part of the tabernacle, the holy place where the, the lampstand is, where the table of showbread is. And only the priests could go in there. So only the priests were consecrated and sanctified to go and to tend to the lampstand and the lamps and trim their wicks and provide oil every day to keep those lamps burning, to once a week replace the showbread that was on the table. Only the priests could do that. That was their ministry. So normal, everyday Israelites could not ever go into the tabernacle. Ever. They, they could not go into the holy place. They certainly could not go into the most holy place. So you're moving outward from there. Now you move outward into the courtyard, right? And even the courtyard had barriers around it. Such that you could not go into the courtyard as an Israelite if you were unclean. You could not go into the tabernacle area if you were ceremonially unclean. And so there are almost like circles moving outward of holiness. And each of these reminds us of the barriers that exist between sinful people and a holy God. We are sinful and God is holy. As you, as you look at this courtyard, a couple of things are significant. A couple of them I've already pointed to. One is that we, we see a decreasing level of the, the quality of materials that are used. So one example of that is that it describes 
finely woven linen curtains that, are, that basically make the fence of the courtyard. But it doesn't say anything about their color. Whereas the colors of the tabernacle are very well defined, of purple, blue, and scarlet. But the curtains around the courtyard, nothing specifically is said about their color. Some have suggested that they're just normal linen, perhaps white or off-white linen. Only with the entrance, only with the curtain that is the gate, if you will, of the courtyard, does it say purple, blue, and scarlet linen. So you have a difference of materials that are used in the curtains. You also have a difference of materials that are used in the metals. So going from gold and silver of the tabernacle, we move a step down to silver and bronze with the courtyard. And the courtyard is 150 cubits by 75 cubits. Did I say that right? Or is it 100 cubits? I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go back here and look. So it's 100 cubits. So 100 cubits... By 50 cubits, I'm getting my cubits and feet mixed up. I've got cubits and feet in my notes. So we have 100 cubits by 50 cubits, which translates to 150 feet by 75 feet, are the roughly the dimensions of the courtyard. And this was, this was creating barriers between the people and between God. And what's interesting about this is you see a direct correlation to what's described here about the courtyard as what was already described about Mount Sinai. Remember when God was telling Moses about coming close to or up Mount Sinai? God put a boundary around it, didn't he? He said, mark mark this off. Mark off this boundary. And if anybody crosses this boundary to approach the base of the mountain, they they will be killed. They'll be put to death. So the barrier is separating off a holy God from sinful people. And this courtyard speaks in the same way of that barrier. Just like Moses was the only one that could ascend to the the summit of the mountain, so also only the high priest can go into the most holy place of the tabernacle. But what is beautiful about this is that through atonement, we can relate to a holy God. And now, in the new covenant, we don't have a courtyard anymore, do we? We don't have a courtyard that separates us from the presence of God. We don't have a tabernacle that separates us from the presence of God, into which only priests could go. We don't even have a most holy place that separates us from the presence of God, into which only one high priest could go once a year. We have now access to the presence of God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, don't we? Such that when Jesus died on the cross, he rent that veil from top to bottom and signifying the fact that now we don't have to go through a courtyard. We don't have to go through an outer holy place. We can go directly through Christ to the presence of the living God. And instead of a human priesthood that are fallible and temporary and they die and they make mistakes and they sin, we have one great high priest who is perfect and who abides forever and who provides access for us to the throne of grace. But in order to relate to a holy God, in this covenant era, in the old covenant era, it had to be mediated through a priesthood. And that's the last section of this passage in verses 20 and 21. It says, Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, so that the lamps may be kept burning. 
In the tent of meeting outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. And so those last couple of verses teach us the importance of the priesthood in Old Testament Israel. And what's clear, and we'll see this in chapter 28 and following, that an anointed priesthood is required to serve as ministers of light and to act as mediators between the holy God and his sinful people. So the altar speaks of atonement. The courtyard and its barriers speak of the separation that exists between sinful people and God. And in order to cross that barrier in the old covenant time, a human priesthood, an ordained consecrated priesthood, Aaron and his sons, that was necessary to stand as mediators between God and the people. So that barrier that existed between God and the sinful people, that barrier had to be crossed, had to be mediated by means of a priesthood. That priesthood was Aaron and his sons. And the way that that barrier was crossed is that Aaron and his sons officiated over and tended to the sacrifices of atonement that were made. And so there's a barrier that exists between sinful people and a holy God. How is that barrier crossed? That barrier can only be crossed by atonement and by a representative priest. And we have that praise God now in Jesus, don't we? We have that in Jesus, who Jesus, unlike these priests in the line of Aaron, Jesus is both sacrifice and priest. How incredible is that? Jesus is both sacrifice and priest. And he's not just a lamb or a bull or a goat. He is a, the divine son of God, the perfect man. As Paul says it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, He is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so in the Old Testament time, in this period, you needed a family of priests to cross this barrier between sinful people and a holy God. And you needed daily perpetual sacrifices. And you needed the lamps on the lampstand burning perpetually every night. And the priests tending to the wicks and the oil every night and continually changing out the bread on the table outside of the most holy place. And now in Christ, we have all of that finished and fulfilled once for all. No more sacrifices are necessary. We don't need to tend to any oil and keep the lamps burning because Jesus is our light. He is our sustenance. He is our bread. He is our atonement. He is our priest. He is our mediator between God and man. He, Jesus is everything that Exodus 27 is describing, isn't he? He's everything that Exodus 27 is describing. And so this is how God set it up in Israel in that old covenant era. But it was all for a purpose, all for relating to them as the holy God to sinful people, but also teaching and laying a foundation for what was to come, wasn't he? Because what was to come was the fulfillment of it all, which was Jesus. This is the pattern. This is the pattern. Just like there's a heavenly tabernacle, and this one is a copy, a shadow, a pattern of that one, Jesus is the true sacrifice, 
And these sacrifices are shadows and patterns of that one. But all of this is pointing to that ultimate fulfillment. And so praise God that we can relate to a holy God through our great high priest who has made atonement for us. That's what this passage teaches us. We, ha- we can relate to a holy God through a great high priest who has made atonement for us. And now we can go into the presence of God and we can worship and we can pray and we can sing and we can ask God for help and we can go before him because the way has been provided by Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. May we sing in joyful praise for what Jesus has accomplished for us in making atonement for us and representing us before our Father in heaven. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Lord God, we thank you so much for the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what this scripture points us to, how it shows us how holy you are. It shows us that you are to be feared that you are to be worshipped. Shows us that in order to come before you, our sins have to be atoned for by means of great sacrifice. This passage teaches us that there's a barrier that exists between us and you, a holy God. And the only way for that barrier to be crossed is through a mediator who can represent us before you and represent you to us. Lord, praise God that we have that mediator in the Lord Jesus, your son that you sent into the world. We praise you that he has become our sacrifice of atonement, that through him, your wrath against our sin is propitiated and we are declared righteous through his work for us. So Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the new covenant relationship that exists between us and you. And that in Christ we can be called your children and our sins can be declared forgiven. Lord, help us to worship you. Help us to delight in your presence. And that through Christ and through your abiding spirit, we have continual access to you. Lord, may we take advantage of that access and come before you. And worship you and pray before you. And just delight in your presence and what you have done for us. Lord, bless us as your people and remind us continually of your grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.